Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. This morning we will be resuming our study in Luke's Gospel, right where we left it off in the spring. Uh, For those of you who are regulars here, we know that we have been in Luke's Gospel for some time, but that uh, we uh, turn our attention away. We take a break during the summer months, uh, but we are picking it up this morning right where we left off in Luke chapter 18. Uh, verse 9. If you are uh, using one of the Pew Bibles, you will find uh, Luke chapter 18, verse 9, on page 877. So Luke chapter 18, beginning uh, at verse 9. Let us read it together. This is the very Word of God. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. That is the reading of God's word. Let us pray and ask for his blessing upon the preaching of His Word here this morning. Father, this is Your Word. Your power for the salvation of everyone who believes. It is by this Word that we have been born again to a living hope. And it is by this Word that we will be nourished to grow up into our salvation. And so, Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be at work here and now, in and through the preaching of your word, and that he might bring forth its fruit in our lives. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're obviously picking up the story midstream. You will remember that uh, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, a journey that began all the way back in Luke chapter 9, a, a journey that will reach its climax in the next chapter as Jesus makes what we often refer to as his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And along the way towards Jerusalem, Jesus has been teaching his disciples and interacting with his opponents. He has been teaching them who he is and what it is that that he is about to do. And of course, this story tells, uh, uh, teaches us an important point, a, a point that Jesus feels compelled to make because, because as he looks around himself, he sees many who were told, trust in themselves that they are righteous. And treat others with contempt. We get a clue as to the theme of of Jesus' teaching when we hear his own interpretive comment in verse 14. Look there with me at the end of this brief passage. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. 
This man clearly uh, refers to the tax collector, the man whom he has just described in the parable. And the other is the other man that he described in the parable. It is the, the Pharisee. And so Jesus is telling us that the tax collector went home justified and the Pharisee did not. The tax collector was justified. The Pharisee was not. This is the point that, that Jesus is making. This is the point that Jesus wants us to see. And so, so clearly Jesus is, is teaching us here something about how a person is justified. How is a person declared righteous? That is the question that, that is on Jesus' mind. And, and notice his, his teaching is both positive and negative. He not only tells us how we might be justified, but he, he shows us one method that doesn't work. He doesn't merely say that the, the tax collector went home justified, but he, he tells us explicitly that the Pharisee did not. And so it is vital that we hear what Jesus has to, to teach us this morning. And I want to do that in, in three parts this morning. First, I, I want us to think about the, the, the definition and the importance of, of justification. What is this justified that Jesus is talking about? What does he, he mean by that term? And why does it matter? Why is it so important? Next, I want us to look at Jesus' warning. His, his warning against the way of the Pharisee. His, his warning against trusting in our own righteousness. And then finally, I want us to look at Jesus' call, his call to be like this tax collector, his call to trust in mercy alone. So let's begin just with the the meaning and the significance of justification. What is it that Jesus is talking about? What does Jesus mean when he says that this man went home justified? You've probably heard before that that term is, is taken from the law court. It's a, it's a legal term. To be justified is the opposite of to be condemned. When you enter into a, a law court and you stand before the judge, you, you have a couple of options. The, the, the law can find you guilty and thus condemn you. Or they can declare you innocent and and in right standing before the law and therefore justify you. To justify you is to declare you righteous. To declare you as as being in right standing before the law. But in Jesus' day, and especially in Jesus' Jewish context, this, this is not simply a legal term. This is not taken from the Roman law courts, but rather it is to be understood within the context of, of the Jewish covenants, the, the Jewish covenantal mindset. Yes, the, the law is in play, but the covenant is the context. God related to these people through a covenant, a covenant that He had, had established with them. He had entered into covenant with them saying, I will be your God and and you will be my people. And therefore, when a Jew thinks about being justified, he doesn't think just in terms of of the Roman law court, but rather he thinks in terms of the covenant. To be declared righteous in God's sight is to be declared as a covenant keeper. As one who has fulfilled the obligations of the covenant, having fulfilled the obligations of the covenant, this one now has a right to all the blessings of the covenant. This is what a Jew would have understood by the language of of justified. To be justified, yes, it is to be, be declared righteous, 
But not just in in terms of the Roman law, but rather in terms of the covenant. To be declared righteous is to be declared as having a right to all the blessings of the covenant. And the covenant in question is that covenant that God himself had established with Abraham. God had called Abraham to himself, and God had promised that he was going to make Abraham into a great nation, that he was going to bless him, that those who who blessed him he would bless, that those who cursed him he would curse, he would be for them, and he would cause their land to to flow with, with milk and honey. This is the blessing that God had promised to Abraham. This is is the blessing that the one who is justified has a right to. And of course, as the the scriptures unfold, we we begin to see that that blessing, that the the land that was was promised there in the Middle East and the the, the temporal blessings, that they were merely shadows. They were were merely tokens of of the true blessing that God had promised. Because the true blessing that God had promised was was not just one piece of land on a still-fallen earth, but as Jesus himself says in his Sermon on the Mount, that not only will they possess the land, but they will inherit the entire earth. And not the earth as it now is, but an earth that has been renewed. An earth that has been put right. A kingdom that, that reflects His kingdom in heaven. Where His will is done on earth as it is there in His very presence. It is what we call eternal life. You see, do you understand that that when we speak of eternal life, we are not just speaking about everlasting life. We are not just speaking about this life extended on forever. That would be no blessing. This life forever would would not be the fulfillment of all that God had promised, but rather eternal life is the life of the age to come. It is it is life of in his kingdom, where his kingdom has been established. A life that is imperishable, yes, but it is also undefiled, Peter says. It is untouched by sin. It is a life where things are as they are supposed to be. Where the things that that cause us to groan, the the things like Hurricane Harvey and the the things like cancer and the, the things that we deal with on a daily level are no more. A world where injustice has been eradicated. Where all things are as they should be. Life forever in that kingdom is what God has promised to His people. He has promised to make His people a kingdom. His kingdom. And to give them not just one little strip of land, but the entire earth made new. This is the blessing. And when you are declared righteous, you are declared as having a right to all of that. You are declared as having a right to living as a citizen in the kingdom of the beloved Son, both now and forevermore. This is what Jesus is talking about. This is what justification is, to be declared right in the sight of God, to be declared righteous before Him, is to be declared as having a right to that kingdom, to that blessing, to that inheritance imperishable, undefiled, whose glory is unfading for all eternity. So when you begin to understand something of of, of what this justification is all about, you you begin to see its significance. You begin to, to see that there is no more important question that you can wrestle with than the question of how is a man justified? 
In my experience, most people today don't feel the weight of this question. We don't don't wrestle with this question of of how we can be justified before God, of how we, we can have eternal life. Because if we believe in eternal life at all, people today just assume it's sort of automatic. Maybe for a few really bad people. Maybe for Hitler and, and Stalin and a few others. Yes, a, eternal life is a problem for them. But for most of us, it's just sort of automatic. We just assume, well, well of course, God is, is gracious. He will take care of that. We, we are much more concerned with our life now. And, and the church has, has gone after what these itching ears want to hear. And it is, it is focused on, on practical, relevant messages. How to have a better marriage. How to be a better friend. How to be a better neighbor. And while there is nothing wrong with, with practical implications, and I hope that, that this message itself will have practical implications in your life, I want you to hear me say this morning that the question of justification, though we do not immediately feel its way in our present context, it is the most important question that you can wrestle with. How can I be justified before God? How can I have an inheritance in this coming kingdom? How can I have eternal life? Because while there are many other things that that we could focus on, while there are many other good things that we could pursue, Jesus himself asks, what does it profit a man if you gain the whole world, if you accomplish all of your resolutions, but lose your soul? What profit is there? If If you do everything you ever wanted to do in this life, if you have your best life now, but lose your soul, what profit is there? It is utter vanity. Jesus asked that question. And we must hear it. We must understand that this is the most important question we can answer. So let's give our careful attention to the answer that Jesus gives us here. First, let us hear His warning. Let us hear the the negative side of, of Jesus' teaching. Because we've, we've seen the importance of justification, but, but now let's see what Jesus says doesn't work. Look again with me at verse 9. Luke tells us that, that Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And there, there are two things that you need to notice there. The, the first thing that you need to notice is that they thought they were righteous. They thought they were right in God's eyes. But, but notice that they also treated others with contempt. That's, that's not just a, a sort of a, a throwaway line. That is significant for us to understand why it is that they thought they were righteous. You see, in, in our day and age, people tend to think that everybody is righteous. Again, except for a few extreme examples of, of, of evil people, we, we tend to think that, that everybody is righteous. Not so the Pharisees, not so these people whom, whom Jesus is addressing. They treated other people with contempt because they assumed that there were certain things they had done to establish their own righteousness. Things that they had done that others that had not. And therefore, they were better than those who were around them. These people whom they treated with contempt were were less than, were lower than they were because they had not established their own righteousness before God the way that the Pharisees had. They took pride in their works. And so what are these works that they believe that they have done to to establish their righteousness before God? Well, Jesus tells us in the parable. 
Look again at the Pharisee's prayer. Notice what he says as he, as he stands before God. First, he, he mentions his morality. He is not an extortioner. That is, he, he does not use his power or his privilege to, to steal from others, to take what is not rightfully is. He is not unjust. It's hard to know exactly what he's referring to there. Unjust is a pretty big category, but, but clearly he sees himself as, as doing the right thing. He is not an adulterer. He has been faithful in his marriage, and he is certainly not a tax collector. He's not like this this man who is a collaborator with the enemy, a man who has betrayed his his birthright. He is a morally upright person. And and before we give him too hard a time, let's let's recognize that this is a good thing. (laughs) These things that he lists are things that we would like to describe us, would they not? We would like to be able to say that we are not extortioners, that we are not adulterers, that we are not unjust in God's sight. These are good things. He's not bragging about things uh, that are in and of themselves reprehensible. These are good things. And not only is he morally, but he is also religiously devout. This is the second thing that he mentions he fasts twice a week and he gives a tithe of all that he gets he doesn't tithe on the net he tithes on the gross and beyond that he tithes on his garden in the backyard he he tithes on it all he gives a tenth of of all that he gives his his religious devotion is impeccable he goes through the steps that that a good christian ought to go through he makes regular use of the ordinary means of grace So this man, this this Pharisee, he is morally pure and he is religiously devout, but there's a third thing that we must see about him if we're really going to understand what, what Jesus is teaching us. And the third thing that we must see here is that he thanks God for his goodness. He thanks God for the good works that have made him righteous. He sees those good works as the fruit of God's grace at work in his life. This man is not a Pelagian. This man does not believe that he has pulled himself up by his own nutrients. He doesn't believe that he has made himself righteous in his own strength. He recognizes, he recognizes that he is dependent upon God's grace. And that it is only by God's grace that he has been able to do these things. He is a good person because God has allowed it to be. And so he gives thanks to God that he is not unrighteous. He gives thanks to God that he is not like this tax collector. He, in effect, says there, but for the grace of God go I. That's what he's saying. And yet, despite the fact that his righteousness is truly good, that these are truly good things, and and despite the fact that he sees this righteousness as the fruit of God's grace in his life, Jesus says he went home unjustified. He went home still under condemnation. So what is it that Jesus is warning us against? What what is Jesus trying to, to teach us? It seems that that Jesus is saying that a person cannot be justified by his own good works, even if those good works are truly good, and even if he believes that those good works are the result of God's grace at work in his life. You see, 
Being saved by grace doesn't mean we believed grace helped us to do the good things we needed to do in order to earn God's favor. It doesn't mean that we, we would have been really bad sinners if, if God hadn't intervened. But, but because He has entered my life, because He has poured out His Spirit on me, now I can do good things. And now, by those good things, I stand before God justified. That's not the Gospel. Now let me be, let me be clear. By God's Spirit, we do good things that are truly good. That's not the point that Jesus is is making. But what is Jesus saying? He's saying that those good works are never good enough to be offered to God as payment for His blessing. Those good works never make us righteous in His sight. Yes, those good works are good. Yes, those good works are the fruit of His grace. But those good works are not the reason that God blesses us. Because our good works, while they are truly good, they are certainly not perfectly good. Even our best works are are still tainted by our sin, by by impure motives. And, And there are countless good works that we leave undone, good works that we were obligated to do. But even if we did every good work that we were ever given to do, and even if we we did it exactly the way that that we uh, were called to do it from this point forward in our life, our good works could never make up for our past sins. Jesus says that even if you do everything, you are an unprofitable servant. You have only done what was required. You cannot place God in your debt. And so we can never stand before God on the basis of our own good works. We, by our own righteousness, even if we do that righteousness in the power of God's grace, that righteousness can never be the ground upon which we stand to receive God's justification. So the question is raised in our minds, well, if that's true, if even our best works, if even our spirit wrought works are not good enough, what hope do we have? How can we possibly be justified? This is exactly what Jesus shows us through the second character in his parable. First, Jesus warns us against trusting in our own righteousness. He says, listen, if you trust in your own righteousness, if you trust in your own good works, even good works done in the power of the Spirit, you will not be justified before God. But if you cast off all those good works, if you you lay them down at the foot of the cross and say, your mercy is my only plea, If you trust in Jesus' work alone and in God's grace alone through Him, Jesus says, then you will be justified. So let's see how he unpacks this for us. Look again at the tax collector who is described in the parable. We're told that that the tax collector is, first of all, a a tax collector, and that's not insignificant. Now, we we can understand tax collectors being despised, right? No one likes taxes, and certainly no one likes tax collectors. But for a Jew, in in Jesus' day, there was more to it than that. A tax collector wasn't just a, a tax collector. A tax collector was a traitor. A tax collector was someone who had conspired with, with Rome, with the oppressor. They had, they had sold their birthright for a, a pot of stew. 
This is who a, a tax collector is. And as, and as a, a result of their working with the Romans and with the, the, the Roman money, they were perpetually unclean. They simply did not care about following the, the rules and the regulations that allowed them to be a good Jew, that, that allowed them to, to worship God as, as Jews were called to do. And so this man is a, is a, is a traitor. He is, a, he is unclean all the time. He is despised by even the lowest of the Jews. And we're told that this man, this, this despised tax collector, he comes to the temple to pray. And unlike the Pharisee, he stands far off. Now that might simply mean that, that he doesn't put himself center stage, that he's not making a, a show of his prayers like the way the Pharisee was, but, but I think there's more to it than that. As he stands far off, he, he shows that he understands himself to be unworthy. Unworthy to, to stand before the true and living God. He knows himself to be unclean. And therefore unworthy to, to come into God's presence. He knows that he has no right to be there. He knows that he is decidedly not righteous. And this is why he will not even lift his eyes to heaven. This is the second thing that, that Jesus tells us in his description. And we know that to, to bow your head and to, to keep your eyes on the ground, this is a, a universal sign of shame. I'm sure you've seen your kids do it when they won't even look you in the eye when they know they've done something they weren't supposed to do. Even your, your dog does it probably as he, as he stares at the ground knowing that he's done something he, he shouldn't have done. This is what the tax collector is doing. He will not even lift his eyes to heaven because he knows himself to be unrighteous. He knows himself to be unworthy in the presence of God, deserving of, of condemnation rather than justification. And this is why he, he beats his breast. He's not punishing himself. This is not him doing penance in some medieval way, but rather he is, he is beating his breast as a sign of his contrition, as a, as a physical expression of his grief and hatred of his sin. He's demonstrating that he knows the utter hopelessness of his estate before God. And this is confirmed by his brief prayer. Notice what he says. He says simply, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Be merciful to me, a sinner. It's a simple prayer, but it is profound. He asks only for mercy. He offers no explanations. He offers no rationalizations. He makes no promises to do better. He is not bargaining with God. He is simply asking for mercy. Thy mercy is my only plea. With this I venture nigh. That is what he is doing. He has no trust in himself. He has no trust in his good works, even good works done in the power of the Holy Spirit. His hope is grounded upon God's mercy and God's mercy alone. And Jesus says, this one went down to his house justified. This one who, who had no righteousness of his own, this one was declared righteous in the sight of God because he trusted in God's mercy. And immediately one asks, well, well, how can God do that? How can God declare the tax collector to be Righteous. Doesn't God Himself say that it is an abomination for a judge to declare the guilty righteous? Indeed He does. 
judges may not declare the, the guilty righteous. And in fact, God explicitly says that he will never do such a thing. He will never leave the guilty unpunished. Yes, he is a God who is merciful and gracious, but he will not clear the guilty. He cannot simply ignore or overlook sin. To do so is contrary to his nature. It is, it is, it is contrary to his, his promises even. He, he cannot do it. If God declared the, the, the guilty to be, to be righteous and let them into his kingdom, then his kingdom would immediately be polluted by the sin that they brought with them. The sin must be dealt with. So how can God do this? It's the mystery. It's the, the mystery of the Old Testament. And Jesus doesn't explain it here. He tells us that it's true. He tells us that this man was justified because he, he trusted in God's mercy. But he doesn't tell us how it works. But we find our answer as we keep reading. Because remember what I said. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And what's going to happen when he gets there? Not some tragic death. Not some accident of history. But he is going to lay down his life as the ransom for many. Your sins will not go unpunished. The tax collector's sins will not go unpunished. But rather, the sins of those who trust in Christ, the sins of those who call upon His name, will be laid upon Him, and He will bear them. He will suffer the the, the wrath that was reserved for me and for you and for those who have trusted in Christ as their Savior And Lord, He who knew no sin will become sin for us. He will redeem us from the curse by taking the curse upon Himself. He will drink to the dregs the cup of God's wrath so that we might instead come to this table and drink the cup of His blessing. This is what Christ does for us. And it is because Christ has done this that we can now be justified. You cannot be justified by your works. You cannot earn eternal life by your goodness. Even goodness wrought by the power of the Holy Spirit. If you trust that you are righteous, even by His grace, you will not be justified. You will have no inheritance in the coming kingdom of God. But if you trust in His mercy and His mercy alone, if you believe that only because of what Christ has done for you may you now stand in the presence of God unafraid, if you throw yourself before God saying, have mercy on me, a sinner, for Jesus' sake and for Jesus' sake alone, then you will be justified. You will be declared righteous. You will be declared having a right to all of the promises of the covenant. There will be an inheritance for you in the coming kingdom of God. It will be yours both now and forevermore. So let me ask you the simple question. Where is your trust this morning? Are you trusting in your own righteousness? Not that you're perfect, but that you're good enough. That by God's grace, you're good enough. Or are you trusting in what Christ has done for you? Are you trusting in the one who stood in your place and drank the cup of God's wrath so that you might instead drink the cup of His blessing? With Christ, I call upon you this morning. Cast off all self-confidence. Humble yourself before the Lord. 
Because if you humble yourself before Him, then you will be exalted. You will be called a child of God. You will be called an heir of His kingdom. And you will be invited to feast at His table. And because such an invitation is laid before us, bought and paid for with the precious blood of our Savior Jesus Christ, that is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, we do rejoice in your goodness. Teach us to trust in your mercy. Save us from all self-confidence. Give us the grace to humble ourselves that we might be exalted and might feast at your table. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.